In the wake of COVID-19 lockdowns, travel restrictions, global economic and cultural turmoil, and increasing hostility toward Christianity, it might be easy for the average Christian to take a defensive posture and forget that the Church of Jesus Christ has been given a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We should ask ourselves, where is our theology taking us? Our Savior, now ruling in the midst of his enemies, said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, true churches of Jesus Christ should at all times devote themselves to the cause of advancing his kingdom through missions and church planting. But how should these things be done? We stand amidst the wreckage of a century full of the spread of evangelical pragmatism and false doctrines which were often championed by armies of churchless pioneer missionaries and parachurch organizations. As a Reformed Baptist, we desire to return to simple obedience to Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Christians must seek to accomplish the Great Commission in the way that He commanded. Local churches must lead the way. We hope you can join us for the first annual Covenant Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, taking place on March 17th through the 19th, 2022. We will hear from Paul Washer, Tom Nettles, Sam Waldron, and John Miller, who will encourage us both to think biblically about the practice of missions and church planning and to commit ourselves afresh to these vital responsibilities given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. To learn more or register today, visit covcon.org. That's covcon.org. Welcome to the Man of God podcast from Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. I was curious as to if I could find the oldest Baptist magazine that is published online on Google. And the earliest I can find is for the year 1810 of the Baptist magazine, which was published in London. It says on the title page, the prophets arising from the cell of this work are given to the widows of Baptist ministers at the recommendation of the contributors. And then there is a list of contributors. In the preface to this magazine, it says the nature and object of our publication being now generally known and its utility is generally appreciated among our brethren for whose service it was more particularly undertaken. It is the less necessary to multiply words on presenting them with the second volume of our labors. The Baptist magazine had its origin in their wishes and we are gratified to perceive that it lives in their approbation. Two years, very general correspondence with our brethren, besides those whose productions enrich our pages, have afforded us the most unequivocal proofs that the Baptists, as a religious body, hold fast a form of sound words and maintain their undeviating attachment to the principles of their forefathers at the time of the Reformation. Possessed of these and engaged in diffusing them, they enjoyed the good wishes and prayers of true believers of every denomination. The promise of God is engaged on their behalf, and no weapon formed against them can prosper. But wherever literary attainments, worldly acquisitions, or philosophic speculations draw professing Christians from these foundations, the shipwreck of their faith and holiness is near at hand. The increasing numbers of our seminaries, public and private, for educating young men of suitable piety and talents for the gospel ministry, 
will be regarded as placing the future prospects of our denomination in the fairest light. Any large-scale as well as unabated diligence of our missionary exertions recorded in these pages cannot but gratify all the friends of vital godliness, while they perceive that their Baptist brethren are equally zealous with themselves in every good work. To our various correspondents, we offer our very grateful acknowledgments. It is only through their contributions that we have been enabled to proceed in our undertaking. The liberal support also of our readers claims our thanks, and we may be permitted to express our resolution that while we continue to enjoy their patronage, our best exertions will be called forth to deserve it. Baptist Magazine, January 1810. It begins with the brief memoirs of the English Baptists. But as I looked through this annual of Baptist magazines of over 500 and some pages, I thought, what could I share with you of edification from it in the very short time that I have here? And what caught my eye is the length of the obituaries contained in this. And so I want to read a couple of these show you how they differ from something that would be written in our day. The first is Mrs. Mary Moss. On Friday morning, November 3rd, 1809, died Mrs. Mary Moss, a beloved wife of Mr. James Moss of Mount Pella near Hebden Bridge in the 40th year of her age. Being pregnant of her 12th child, she was seized with the violent pains of labor on Sunday morning, October 29th and continued extremely ill all that day. Besides the agonies incident in difficult cases, she was sorely afflicted with the cramp, but she was unable to bear all her sufferings with exemplary patience and resignation. Towards night, the pains of labor subsided, but she continued exceedingly ill and was judged to be in a very great danger. As it was concluded that the child was dead, the person who attended her called her afflicted husband aside and told him that there was little hope of saving the patient's life, but by extracting the child, and that she might die under the operation or soon after. When it was proposed to her, she consented to undergo the operation, giving herself up into the hands of the Almighty, and hoped that it might please him to spare her life for the sake of her affectionate husband and numerous family of young children. After she was delivered in the way proposed, she appeared to be as well as could be reasonably expected, but complained of a violent pain about the region of the stomach. As this continued, it excited the fears of her friends greatly, and an able physician was called in. Her patience and calmness of mind were wonderful under all her sufferings. At intervals, some hopes were entertained of her recovery, but they were soon blasted by the return of unfavorable symptoms. The inflammation which occasioned the pain of which she had complained was succeeded by what was more threatening, and which brought her into such a state of weakness that on being moved she several times fainted away and seemed as one dead. Her language when she was able to speak was such as became a Christian. But such was her regard for her family that she cherished some hope of being spared to them until within a few hours of her death. When I visited her on a Saturday evening, I found her in such a state of mind as surprised and affected me much. The first words she expressed to me were, I am dying, 
I said, do you think so? Yes, I know I am going to die, but... She then began to discourse on the glories of the heavenly world, the sufferings and death of that adorable Redeemer with whom she said she was going to live and reign with forever, in a manner which I feel myself utterly unable to describe. There were many present to whom she addressed herself with such affection and heavenly sweetness as moved every heart and brought floods of tears from every eye. I cannot relate one-fourth part of what she said, but I must say I have not been witness to such a moving scene for fifty years back. All her tender attachments to the dear objects of her affections in this world seem to be entirely swallowed up in an overpowering sense of her Redeemer's love. And of the glories of the heavenly world, of which glory she spoke as if she had been already an inhabitant of those blessed regions. Her own suffering, she said, had been nothing in comparison with the sufferings of him who died to save her. Her hopes and views were full of immortality, nor did she signify the least hesitation concerning her immediate entrance into the presence of her Redeemer. The song of heaven was a grand theme of her discourse, worthy as the lamb that was slain. She continued to speak in this strain without interruption for a considerable length of time, and with such energy, such fervor, such strength of voice, such celestial sweetness has filled us all with astonishment. When she concluded her testimony, she desired us to sing. I expressed my fear respecting our ability to do it, as we were overwhelmed with sorrow. But she again begged that we would do it. We attempted then to sing the hymn to which she seemed to refer, and which she appeared to bear apart from the beginning to the end. Come, let us join our cheerful songs, and so on. Isaac Watts. Being quite exhausted, she lay still for a little while, and then began to speak again in the same strain as before. It was like a gleam of sunshine in the valley of the shadow of death. About twelve o'clock I went into her room for the last time. Her speech began to falter, but still I could hear part of the closing sentence, Glory too. World without end, amen. She then grasped my hand affectionately, and all motion ceased. The above were the last words she uttered, for when she had sounded amen, she immediately began to expire. Her breathing continued for about half an hour, and then without the least struggle, sob or groan, she gave up the ghost, sweetly falling asleep in Jesus. Her remains were interred early in the morning of the Lord's day, in the presence of a large concourse of people who appeared to be greatly affected on the occasion. In the afternoon, a discourse was delivered on the words which had afforded so much divine delight to the deceased. Revelation 5, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. End quote. That was from the year 1809. The next obituary is of the Reverend Nathaniel Rawlings. It starts like this. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? No, these men of like passions with others, like other men, like all sinners, 
die. Yet the memory of the just is blessed. Their journey through life is marked by a progress which in its moral splendor resembles a shining light which shines more and more unto the perfect day. This beautiful illustration very happily characterized the pious subject of this slight memoir, the days of whose pilgrimage, amounting to more than threescore years and ten, were nearly all spent in a state of blessed progression. The late Reverend N. Rawlings was born at Morton in the Marsh, Gloucester, in 1733. His father and mother were long members of the Baptist Church at Burton on the Water. On his maternal side, genuine piety is to be traced through preceding generations. His ancestors were among those of whom the world was not worthy, and who avoided its fury and persecuting times by assembling in solitary places. Mr. Rawlings was serious from a child, and baptized at Burton in 1750 at 18 years of age. The church soon requested him to preach, and when after long solicitation his diffidence had yielded to the trial of his abilities, he was sent to Bristol Academy, then under the care of the Reverend H. Evans and the Reverend B. Foskett. Here he remained four years, during this period he supplied the church at Trowbridge, and was so far approved as to be called a determination of it to the pastoral charge. It was nevertheless a season of adversity. The number was scanty, the brethren were at variance, and symptoms of disaffection to the ministry of Mr. Rawlings began to discover themselves, so that his ordination which occurred October 10th, 1765, was succeeded by his resignation and removal in 1771, when he settled at Broughton in Hampshire. A few days previous to his departure, he married Miss Mary Webb, an eminently pious woman, who was baptized at the age of twelve. With her he enjoyed the sacred interests of conjugal life for thirty years. She died in November of 1801 without children, and he remained a widower. At Broughton he resided six years when a visit to his friends at Trowbridge, renewing all their former attachments, produced their united and successful application for his return. He resumed his charge in November of 1777. The first settlement was short and troublesome, the last durable and happy. A long series of uninterrupted prosperity in this part of Zion signalized with peculiar favor his subsequent ministry, and his declining life, cheered by the affection of his people, and the success of his labors did not present that sort of gloomy pause which has marked, alas, so frequently the fainting energies of extended age, producing a melancholy interval between the business of both worlds. A remarkable integrity of character, united with great plainness of manner, sometimes failed to introduce Mr. Rawlings advantageously to the attention of a stranger, but gave him an honorable seat in the circle of friendship. There it was known how much the law of kindness governed his heart, and there, breaking through his natural reserve, it was expressed by the appropriate communications of the tongue, ministering grace to the hearers, to the popularity of his address or the brilliancy of his talent, none of his friends 
of Mr. Rawlings will attribute his permanent success as a preacher, but they will remember with veneration how well his holy life and deep personal experience enabled him to enforce those doctrinal subjects in which he specially delighted. They will recollect the usefulness of discourses which finding entrance at the heart abundantly compensated for the want of elegancies which had they distinguished a preacher could not thus nobly have survived him they will look around on the late converts of his ministry and see how this aged shepherd brought home the wanderers to his master's fold when it was even tied with himself and nature might have languished for repose more than 40 members have been added to the church during the last five years, and the place of worship has been crowded. He was taken ill while attending the funeral of the late Reverend Mr. Clark of Trowbridge, and never preached afterwards. He said to a friend who called on him the next day, My work is done. I have nothing more to do here. His tedious illness was admirably sustained. His consolations were not expressed by ecstasies, but by the peaceful triumph of an abiding hope, of which he spoke often to those about him. He died October the 7th in 1809. His funeral sermon by the Reverend J. Barnard of Bradford was delivered to an overflowing house, from whence indeed hundreds departed, unable to obtain admission. It was founded on a passage selected by himself, at once describing the blessedness of his past experience and the emphasis of his present joy. Christ is all and in all. End quote. The next obituary in a later annual of the Baptist magazine is of Mr. John Denton. Mr. John Denton was a native of Newport in the Isle of Wight, and well respected by the inhabitants of the place. In the early part of his life, he was occupied in doing business on the great waters and made several voyages to the West Indies, in some of which he was almost miraculously preserved from a watery grave. He used to speak of two remarkable instances of divine interposition with much emphasis, namely the passing close by another ship in a dreadful hurricane when the concussion had they struck each other, must have been fatal to one or both. Another was being nearly foundered in a packet of which he was master in a voyage to New York. All these things were ineffectual to bring him to a just sense of his state as a guilty sinner. But God, who had a favor towards him, overruled existing circumstances for his ultimate advantage. And from a reflection on a past deliverance and a series of succeeding calamities he was induced to leave the sea and return to his native place to see his aged parents in a letter he writes thus whilst on board a ship in the river thames my mind is much troubled but i know not from what cause except to be a separation from those i dearly love and I pray to God that he would calm my distracted mind, from which it should appear he was not at this time altogether exempt from conviction and remorse. During a stay, 
with his friends. They converse with him on the concerns of his immortal soul. And a conversation of his pious brother and father appeared to have a salutary effect. And at their instance, he was prevailed on to go one evening to hear the Reverend Robert Winter, who was then settled in Newport. And the most satisfactory evidence was given of his so receiving the word and the love of it as was effectual to salvation. After leaving the Isle of Wight, he was appointed clerk to a dock in London, when he attended with much satisfaction and edification the ministry of the late venerable Abraham Booth, and Mr. Gray, his assistant in Prescott Street. Here he, with his wife, were baptized on a profession of faith and repentance, and were united to the church with whom they walked in the sweet fellowship of the gospel. But soon as affliction commenced, which was to terminate his earthly career, he was visited by his religious friends in London, and the frame of his mind, I believe, was such as became an afflicted saint. But it was the latter part of his affliction, after he had removed back to Newport, that I can best speak to, and the following narrative will comprehend what may be necessary to say on the occasion. At first his experience was very variable, but it appeared that in this affliction, like ancient Isaac, he grew more abundantly in divine knowledge and holy submission. In conversing with a friend, he would often say, My affliction is heavy and long, but it comes from a good and gracious Lord, who knows what is best for me. Had this come upon me when I was a stranger to God, how could I have possibly borne it? Now he has prepared my heart to profit by this painful dispensation. I would not exchange my pain and affliction for the most enviable situation in life with my former ignorance of God and Christ. Sometimes, when his pains were very long and violent, he would say, I see the Lord is making my illness a blessing to our people, meaning his relatives. It appears to be sanctified to several of them, and I hope it will be to all of them in the end. I am willing to suffer anything that may at all promote the glory of God. As the complaint advanced, his faith grew stronger, and his hope became like an anchor to the soul, sure and steadfast, and his love to the Redeemer abounded more and more. He would often say, I have felt much of the divine presence today. I have found Christ precious to my soul. He has said, as your day is, so shall your strength be. And I have found it to be the word of that God who is faithful and true. He feared at times that he did not feel so patient as he ought under the hand of God. And when the violence of his pain was extreme, would often say, Oh, my heavenly Father, give me grace, and I may bear thy whole will. And when the pain in any measure abated, would add, Blessed be the Lord who has helped me now. His grace is sufficient. I hope I shall never forget that. When there appeared some possibility of his recovery, he said, Should the Lord restore me, I hope I shall let none of my precious time pass unimproved, but that for me to live may be Christ. 
When the idea of his recovery vanished, he said with holy resignation, It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. A friend asked him how he felt, his mind in the near prospect of death. He answered, Peaceful and happy. His friend remarked to him that in the former part of his affliction he had felt a dread on his spirits at the idea of death. He said, Yes, I had, but Christ is more precious to me now than ever. Blessed God, when shall I come to appear before thee? Oh, happy, happy place. Heaven is indeed delightful. Tis delightful only to think of it. What must it be to enjoy it? One night, finding himself much worse, he desired the whole of the family then at home to be called up, and he spoke to them severally in the most affecting manner on the great concern of their souls and of salvation by Jesus Christ. An acquaintance of his, who had been long afflicted, called to see him, and they conversed together on their afflictions, on their supports, and on their expected home, and on parting he said, Well, I shall pass a river before you. Soon after this, his end came, which was peaceful, desirable, and joyful. Quote. The next obituary is of Miss Martha Judson. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, God sometimes perfects praise. When these instances occur, they cannot fail to excite interest. It is for this reason that the following short account of Miss Martha Judson, a war Miss Sir Wilts, who died happy in the Lord October 11th of 1809, in her 15th year, is written for insertion in the Baptist magazine. It was Miss Justin's happiness to have pious parents whose solicitude for the spiritual welfare of their children was rewarded by this first seal to their pious exertions. Miss Judson's religious impressions commenced at the very early period of six years of age, occasioned by the frequent conversation of her mother respecting the evil of sin, the value of the soul, the importance of prayer, the love of the Savior, and so on. At an early age, she was placed at a boarding school under the care of pious teachers who frequently addressed the children upon some interesting topic of a religious nature, which under a divine blessing strengthened the impressions of our young friend. While here, her piety was particularly manifested in selecting one of her school fellows and frequently withdrawing in private to converse upon serious subjects, the Bible. The Bible, Isaac Watts, Joseph Hartz, and John Rapon's hymns were her constant companions, and from these she enriched her mind with much experimental treasure, the stores of which she often repeated in her last illness. Her disposition was peculiarly diffident, which is, as one calls it, a sacred, solitary feeling, and prevented her from opening her mind and expressing the real state of her feelings to those who could have sympathized with her under convictions of sin, and would have rejoiced in being the instruments of pouring into her wounded soul those consolations which a religion of Jesus produces. 
Owing to this, her parents would frequently converse with her as though she knew nothing of religion, which she afterwards informed them pierced her very heart. The people of God were the objects of her warmest affections. She had frequently expressed a pleasure she felt in their company. She would listen attentively to their conversation upon their religious experience, and would afterwards examine herself as to her own evidences of being the subject of divine grace. Her constitution was very tender and delicate and hence she was often the subject of much indisposition but the patience and meekness with which she bore her bodily infirmities evidenced the influence of religion on her heart this led her to remark in one of her violent paroxysms of pain oh what are my sufferings if they were ten times greater when compared with the sufferings of christ our young friend delighted to attend the means of grace publicly the gospel, and to be as much disengaged as possible from worldly objects. It was her practice to hear with her eyes cast downward, for she said, if I look up, I am immediately engaged in thinking who are present, and my eyes are looking at the dress of the young people, and so on. Not that she was fond of gaiety and dress, for whenever she had an opportunity, she discovered her aversion to it. Early in the summer of 1809, it pleased the Lord to visit her with symptoms of a decline, which increased so fast that she soon took to her bed. Here, her friends who visited her during the space of 19 weeks long remembered the many spiritual expressions she used as expressive of the state of her mind. At the commencement of her illness, she was much exercised with doubts and fears respecting her state, and was often heard to repeat these words, When thou, my wretched judge, shall come to fetch thy ransom people home, lie among them stand? Shall such a worthless wretch as I, who sometimes am afraid to die, be found at thy right hand? At this period, some friends would ask her, do you feel the need of a Savior? Do you love Jesus? When she would burst into tears and reply, Yes, I do love the Lord. The words of our Lord in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, were very precious to her, and were often repeated by her as affording her much comfort and delight. Upon her mother's entering her room one morning, she said, I have had a refreshing night, and repeated, Once they were mourning here below, and wet their couch with tears. They wrestled hard as we do now, with sins and doubts and fears. Adding, that as saints formerly went thus to glory, she was encouraged and supported by the thought that she resembled them. Previous to her death, she said, I had thought if I lived till I was sixteen years old, I would propose myself to join the Baptist Church at Crockerton, where her father was a member. And then I thought how comfortable addressing herself to her father for us both to walk to the house of God in company and sit together at his table. She then referred to those parts of Scripture respecting believers' baptism on which she said she found her sentiments. At one time, when her sufferings were very great, she prayed very fervently for Jesus to put underneath his everlasting arms and guide her through the valley of the shadow of death. 
and appearing to be much at liberty, said, I feel no pain, no pain worth calling pain, although my sufferings are great. Sin appeared to her exceeding sinful, and she would often rejoice in the prospect of being delivered from its power and of being happy in the enjoyment of God forever. At the termination of her earthly existence drew near, she enjoyed much of the love of God in the presence of the Savior. On the last Saturday she spent on earth, she wished to see the whole family. When they came, taken each by the hand, she addressed them severally upon the value of their immortal souls, urging them to seek the Lord with full purpose of heart, and then holding up her dying hands, pointing her finger towards heaven, cried out with shouts of joy, There I shall soon see my dear minister, my dear sister, my dear uncle, and there you, my dear father and mother, will soon follow. There come and sit round the throne to sing the praises of the Lamb forever and ever. O oh, eternity, eternity, tis not too long thus to be employed. Tis not for a week, a month, a year, but forever and ever. In the course of the Lord's day she addressed her mother and said, Sing, mother, sing. But her parental feelings were too much affected. Wherefore she began herself and saying, Sweet to rejoice in lively hope, that when my change shall come, angels will hover round my bed and waft my spirit home. In the evening she expressed a wish that the family would drink tea in her chamber, and whilst they were sitting round the table said, I hope we shall all meet round the throne, I hope to be there soon. Afterwards, she said, Mother, never omit talking to the children about their soul's welfare, for if ever I knew anything of religion, it commenced with your instructions. From this time, she continued in a happy frame of mind until the following Wednesday morning, when she gently fell asleep in Jesus without a sigh or a groan. Let parents take encouragements from hence to pay particular attention to the eternal happiness of their children in early life. Let young people observe the importance of religion. They are not secure from the shafts of death. The Son of Man may come ere they are aware in an hour when they look not for him." Though there are a number of following obituaries, we have time for just one more. Mr. Thomas Turner. On the 17th of December last, died at Danbury in the county of Essex, Mr. Thomas Turner in the 91st year of his age. When he was 10 years old, he became the subject of conviction for sin, but these soon subsided and he walked for a time according to the course of this world. When a young man, he was united with others and carrying on that delightful part of the worship of God, singing. Upon one occasion, hearing the congregation called upon to sing to the praise and glory of God, he instantly began to ask himself whether he had ever thus sung. Upon reflection, he found he had not. This produced keen convictions, which terminated in a saving conversion to God. With the God, singers in general were led thus to reflect. For it is to be lamented that in too many places the sacred exercise is carried on by very improper characters. Having through grace given himself to the Lord, he gave himself to the Church of Christ in Chelmsford, now under the pastoral care of the Reverend Mr. Cooper. Here he was a member nearly 60 years, continuing in their communion until he was removed to the church triumphant. 
He was married in early life, and the first fruit of the union was a son. This favor from God, he often said, deeply impressed his mind from the consideration that he had now another soul to care for. He found that his path in the wilderness was a thorny one, many painful exercises he met with. But through the good hand of his God upon him, he possessed much patience, and in him it had its perfect work. He was esteemed by all who knew him. He brought up his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Such was his prudence in governing that a look or nod was sufficient to command respect and obedience. He had the peculiar happiness to see three of his children called by grace and united with the Church of Christ in different places. His son James was in communion with the Lord's people at Tottenham Court Chapel. After a long and painful affliction, he died happy in God September 20th, 1808, in the 56th year of his age. His daughter is in communion with the church under the pastoral care of the Reverend John Bain, Potter Street, Harlow. She says that some months before his death, she went to see him, asked whether he did not find a willingness to be gone. He answered, he did not. Death had a very gloomy aspect to him. He told her he had been favored with the faith of reliance for many years, but not with the faith of assurance. In his last illness, which lasted but a week, he was set at liberty by the grace and spirit of him who came to deliver them, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He said to one of his daughters, The devil is a liar. I always told him so. I am happy. I am going to my Jesus. I am him, and he is mine. All fear was banished. He observed to her, I have prayed for you, for all my children and grandchildren, and then I'll pray for you. He admired the divine goodness in answering prayer. Nearly 15 years ago, he labored under a heavy affliction. He begged of God to lengthen his days as he did those of Hezekiah, and had he survived until April, it would have been just 15 years. He chose for his funeral text, Isaiah 43, verse 1, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine.